We're about to hop into my discussion with Catherine McKenna about her memoir called The Paleontologist's Daughter. Hang around after the conclusion of our discussion and the credits for Catherine's more detailed discussion of the influences on her art. Hope you enjoy it all. Science and arts are, are kind of related anyway. <laughs> the way you think, it's, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of being broad-minded, it's a way of being an artist, I think, is always an exploration, just like being a scientist is always an exploration. And it really, like the color class that I teach is, is more, I sometimes refer to it as color science, you know, it's a science class in some ways, or color math of some sort. So it's, uh, you know, they're very related, I think, mostly in sort of a philosophical way. So um, I think when I became an artist, it was really a deep, deep exploration of myself and what I could do to create imagery that talked to people and let them have a feeling of something, you know, and... So that that was really one of the, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a painter. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescue, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading, and in this case, to tell me about what they've written. Before I welcome my guest today, let me briefly mention some of the books I've recently read and recommend. This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub. I cannot remember another book that had me reading through tears in my eyes like this one. Both poignant and beautiful. A Father and His Daughter. Great recommendation by Melanie. The Late Karma by Jean Hanf Korlitz. An engrossing, highly entertaining, late 20th, early 21st century upper-class New York novel running through Brooklyn Heights, Martha's Vineyard, IVF and Frozen Eggs, Private School, Ivy League Colleges, Sibling Rivalry, Family Dysfunction, Trauma, Lies, Deceits, Infidelity and Scandals, Class, Race, Politics, Religion, Art, Lost and Found Relationships. Exhausting to even reflect on all that was in that book. I then calmed myself down from that one by reading two classic Elizabeth Strout novels, Lucy by the Sea, and O. William. I've loved all of her work since I first met Olive Kitteridge. Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCain. Written in 2009, it's a pre-9-11 novel that starts in August 1974 on a high wire between the two World Trade Towers and promptly comes down to earth, landing with a thud in the South Bronx during its nadir of poverty, violence, drugs, blight, desperation, and prostitution. Well done. Button Man by Andrew Gross. Jews in New York's garment district during the early 20th century. Basically my family's history. Riveting. Thanks to my friend Jeff Kaminsky for the recommendation. The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst. Coming of age of a gay young man at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic in Margaret Thatcher's mid-1980s London. Absolutely captivating. 
two novellas by Claire Keegan, Foster, and small things like these, two tightly written, moving stories of small-town Ireland. And finally, The Paleontologist's Daughter by Catherine McKenna, a beautiful memoir that we'll discuss in a moment. And now for today's guest. Carol and I recently attended a lovely dinner party hosted by Abigail Sturgis and other supporters of the Woodstock Birdcliff Guild. On its website, the Guild describes itself as a vibrant center for arts and crafts in the beautiful and unique rural community of Woodstock, New York, while preserving the historic and natural environment of one of the earliest utopian arts colonies in America. Carol and I live in the Woodstock Birdcliff community and the beauty abounds whichever way you turn. I had the good fortune of being seated next to Catherine McKenna at Abigail's dinner party. Catherine is on the board of the Guild and was Carol's painting and color instructor at the Woodstock School of Art, which is a sweet coincidence. Catherine and her brothers, Douglas, Andrew, and Bruce, grew up in Englewood, New Jersey, and Carol was Bruce McKenna's eighth grade elementary school teacher small world. Catherine now divides her time between the Hudson Valley and the American West. Her landscape paintings of Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Utah, and Arizona reveal an attachment to the natural geology and essence of place, which will be revealed as we discuss the childhood trips Catherine writes of in her memoir. Catherine has exhibited widely and her paintings reside in permanent collections throughout the West, as well as in Woodstock. Catherine also serves on the boards of Pratt Institute, the Woodstock Birdcliff Guild, and the Art Society of Kingston. Over dinner, Catherine told me of her father's work as a paleontologist, including at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and of her own field work out West with her father when she was very young. I was fascinated that her artistic journey started with what she was exposed to as a, at a very young age and what she learned at the side of her father. Catherine mentioned that she had written a memoir, which I then ordered from the Woodstock Birdcliff Guild. And we're here today to discuss the book, the backstory, and what came next for Catherine. Welcome, Catherine. I'm so glad to have you with me on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Your memoir is as much a beautiful tribute to your father as it is a recounting of your early years. In your memoir, you refer to your dad as a pioneer, an explorer, and consummate paleontologist who loved what he did. Later, you write that you will always be grateful for what your dad instilled in you, the curiosity, the adventure, the need to grow, to be the idiosyncratic person who gravitates towards the unorthodox. You also write that your dad's educational philosophy is that you can learn more outside school through experience than by memorizing facts in the classroom. Don't let your schooling interfere with your education, was his ironic instruction a la Mark Twain. Tell us, if you would, please, about the exploratory, adventure, and sometimes death-defying trips your dad took your family on and that you write about in your book and connect what you saw and learned on those trips that set the stage for you to become the artist you are today. 
This was a fascinating book. And while I read it, knowing that you had become an artist, that you are an artist, I felt as if I could see it as I read. So tell us about that. Well, like, like you said, my dad really instilled this, uh, a great sense of curiosity, uh, which I've carried through my entire life. And, uh, and I've applied it to every activity that I've done, you know, every job that I've ever had or any kind of artwork that I've ever done. So it's, it's, uh, it started very early, this instilling this sense of curiosity in, in us as children. And uh, we, were, we were brought up um, in Englewood, New Jersey, but we, our real feeling of um, home was out west because that was the summertime and we, we would just hop in the, the, the car and drive across the country as fast as we could. As soon as school was out in June, we were, we were out of there. <laughs> and my parents were Western as well. They, they, were from, they grew up in California. And my grandparents as well grew up in California. So we had a big Western side to us. But uh, my dad was very, he was a very open-minded person. And, uh, and he displayed it very well, I think. We, we did go on a lot of adventures um, as children and as young teenagers. And we had a Land Rover and we got stuck so many times um, in in ravines and mud and had to winch them, figure out ways to winch it out, even though we had nothing to winch to. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was sort of part adventure and part survival. It was very serious sometimes, but we always managed to overcome whatever problems that we had because we were thinkers. So um, that was something else that he definitely instilled in us, um, solving problems and figuring things out. And uh, so it's, it's, it was quite extraordinary that way growing up with my father. It sounds like your family uh, consisted of Westerners who came east. Did you, did, did you come east because of your father's role in the American Museum of Natural History? Yes. Yes. He took over the, the job of George Gaylord Simpson, who was was the paleontologist of the time, and he retired, and my father took over his position uh, as curator of the Frick collection of fossil mammals, <laughs> not the art collection. <laughs> right, right. Different Frick. And and were there, <laughs> were there artists in your family? Um, not really. My family was very scientific and very intellectual. Um especially on my father's side. Um, they, were, they were metallurgists and scientists and industrialists. And, and, um, but I think there was a little bit of an art strain in, in my mother's side of the family because she was a musician. And before that, her mother was a weaver. So there was some, you know, there was some tendency towards the, the arts on that, on my mother's side of the family. So, um, yeah. And, and throughout, throughout your book, you, you, you make mention of the colors that you saw out West. And again, I, I probably was sensitive to finding these because I knew you were an artist, but it is throughout, uh, the book and I've been out West and I'm colorblind, but that's a different story. But even I, can see and appreciate the carols and colors, and certainly Carol uh, sees them and, and and sensitizes me yeah. to them. But 
But uh, talk, mm-hmm. talk about the colors that you saw out west. Well, the colors out west are, there are a lot of exposed rocks out west, whereas, you know, here in Woodstock, it's a little different because it's mostly greenery and, and that's nice too. But out west, they, they have these rocks, those outcroppings and buttes like red sandstone that changes color uh, when the sun goes across the sky and yellows and uh, lots of like beautiful subtle colors. My colors are, are sort of an exaggeration of, of those colors that you see out west, obviously, because I'm more of a fauvist than a realist. But can you, can you describe what that is? Well, the Phobes were, they went crazy with color. It was sort of like Van Gogh and, and trying to think of the other artists that were Phobes, but, uh, Blamanc maybe. And, uh, they, they were, they were definitely using color to express, um, and they were post-impressionist, but a realist is trying to get exactly what it looks like. So the, the, the colors would be very true to what you would be I like to explore with color. That's one of my biggest things is to discover new colors. And there's a, a one of the things that I would teach in my color classes. Well, there is no such thing as one color because color is affected by light and light is always changing, uh, you know, because the sun is going across the sky. So every second that the sun is moving, it's the color is going to change. Right. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, that's something that I like to try and capture on my painting is the transition of color and creating new colors um, that I haven't really used before. And that often means combining different colors with paint and putting colors next to each other and also creating matrix of color by letting them dry first before you put another layer on. So that's, that's the the uh, sort of the the work that I do with my painting. Right. There, there's a passage in the book that captures um, what you've just said with regard to the light. You talk about being on uh, the Boyer family ranch. Uh, the Boyers were, were, the, were they friends of your family? Yes, they were. Uh, we would spend time at the Boyer ranch in southern Wyoming. And that's where I learned how to ride horses and hay and, um, kind of get a taste of the western life in reality <laughs> right and and you talk yeah, so and, and actually your your parents if i remember correctly from the book left you there maybe it was on the their first expedition rafting through the colorado uh through the grand canyon was that right i think they hmm, i think they may have yes i think we they they dumped us there because they were going down the Colorado River with the, the Eismans. Uh, I think it was 69. Yeah. I think that was the first year that they did it. So um, 1969 in wooden cataract boats with the Mexican hat expedition. Right. And we, 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 we didn't, I didn't go on that leg of that. I didn't go on, it was 68 maybe, maybe it was the year before. Um, but I, uh, missed that leg of the trip um but i did go down in 69 um on the centennial expedition with the, the mexican hat expedition so so talk in a, these wooden boats right to, to, so i referred to i will come back to the boyer family ranch but to, as long as we're on it that was a yeah. death-defying trip now um <laughs> so just as your father's philosophy and mark twain's was you learn more out of school uh, with experiences you know, that's Carol's philosophy as well, always has been. 
and yeah. the putting your children in my daughter always says it's not an ultra rescue family trip until unless somebody comes close to death and that sound that sounds like <laughs> the philosophy your father had as well well i i am not really sure that he even thought about death i think for him it was an, it was an adventure and i think he probably didn't really know how scary it was going to be and we just thought it was just normal you know <laughs> uh we just thought it was normal to get flipped over in a rapid and go down the colorado river in a wooden boat <laughs> but uh it certainly was an adventure how, and, how, how old uh, how old were you at this time i was 13 in in 1969 and I just happened to be in the, the one boat that slipped the second day we were on, on the river. And I don't even remember it happening. All of a sudden, I was upside down under under a, a, a boat and trying to figure out what just happened and kind of finding trying to find my way out to the edge of the boat so I could come up and get some air. But <laughs> and, and you were the, we had life preservers. <laughs> and you were the youngest <laughs> of the siblings on the trip. Bruce was too young. No, I, I, I was the second oldest, actually. Ah, oh, really? And there was Andrew, younger brother, Andrew, older brother, Douglas. And Bruce was too young to go on that trip. So wow. he, he was spared of all the trips down the Colorado River. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so there, there were many such trips, many such adventures. But coming back to the Boyer family ranch, when, the first time they went and, and uh, as an experiment. So he was careful enough not to take you on a maiden voyage. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> you, you said in the book, uh, the moment has come from the high point you can see for 100 miles. The moment has come for the moonlight sunset uh, to the west. Yes. That's, yeah. Do you Up at the rim, they called it. Yeah. Do you have the book right there? I don't have it right on okay. me. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. You say the moment has come for the moon. Yeah, right. You called it the rim. The moment has come for the moonlight sunset. To the west, the sun is setting over the Badlands, and to the east, the full moon salutes the sun at the same precise moment. Looking east, I see the dusty rose horizon fading into a pale magenta above the grayer purple of the ground. In the opposite direction, the orange sun sips down through pale turquoise sagebrush, turning it slightly reddish-green. I am staring into my future palette as a painter. I marvel at the color being produced by this mysterious celestial counterpoint. I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> that was, yes. <laughs> it was. I've never forgotten that, that scene there, actually. Um, and often when I see the moon coming up, I think, oh, the sun's going down on the other side, because I think it does it pretty much any, everywhere. But it's the full moon and the sun. But uh, that place, was really beautiful and it's very hot, high up on a plateau and you could see for a hundred miles. It's just a very special place that I've never forgotten. Yeah. It sounds, sounds and wonderful. I think I was very in tune with color from an early age. I think by the time I was, you know, in, in kindergarten, I was trying to figure out how my best friend managed to use her crayon, her blue crayon so well. When I couldn't do it as well, she could. <laughs> but I knew, remember it was blue, and she just had some way of using it that I wanted to, to use it the same way. But um, I was using color ever since I was a little kid, really. Right. 
at the very end of the book, you talk about uh, incorporating your scientific her heritage. You say, as I incorporated my scientific heritage, I found myself wanting more and more to become an artist. How did you relate the two? Well, you know, science and arts are, are kind of related anyway. <laughs> the way you think. It's, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of being broad-minded. It's a way of being an artist, I think, is always an exploration, just like being a scientist is always an exploration. And it really, like the color class that I teach is, is more, I sometimes refer to it as color science. You know, it's a science class in some ways or color math of some sort. So it's, uh, you know, they're very related, I think, mostly in sort of a philosophical way. So um, I think when I became an artist, it was really a deep, deep exploration of myself and what I could do to create imagery that talked to people and let them have a feeling of something, you know. And so that that was really one of the, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a painter. I, I was a photographer for a, a while and a black and white photographer. And in fact, I have an exhibition right now in Tempe, Arizona. It's been up for two years of photographs I took when I was 19. And they're all black and white photos of the Navajo Reservation. And um, I was very much involved with photography at one time. But at a certain point, I thought, well, the camera is doing all the work. I have my eye, but the cameras, I want my eye to be the camera. So that's when I sort of decided to become the painter. That's fascinating. In some ways. I was going to ask yeah. about your cameras. You refer in the book to your, let's see, you start with your Kodak Instamatic and then your Pentax camera. It was a then Kodak, a, yeah. Then a Kodak <laughs> Retinet, is that what it was? Yes, the Retinet. That was my dad's camera. He gave it to me. <laughs> and I, I, I thought there would be a relationship. Uh, and, and so it, it's capturing images in a way different than painting, but it, it, maybe that was the beginning of your capturing images. Yeah. It is. It's like I just, I see it. I see it's the same eye that was taking the photograph that is looking at the, the landscape scenes out west. It's the same, it's the same eye. So my paintings, there's probably, you know, if you really looked at it, that there's a relationship between these photographs and my paintings, you could see. But I also learned a lot from my teachers. So, um, I had two painting teachers who, uh, one was at Pratt Institute, who she was the one who taught me color, Mary Buckley. And then I had a, uh, I had a painter teacher up here in Woodstock and Kingston. His name was Nicholas Buhalis, and he was one of the best teachers I ever had in my life. And he, he was not associated with any university or anything like that. He was just, I wanted to learn how to paint. I wanted to apprentice basically find someone to apprentice with. And he, he turned out to be the perfect person to do that with. And he knew a lot. He knew a lot and he knew how to, he knew how to coax the artist out of you. That's wonderful. And that was one of the greatest, greatest uh, um, attributes. That's great. Uh, early in the book, uh, you say, even though I'm only 11 years old, I'm a finder. It's a gift. I find precious objects where no one else does. My sight is keen. My eye for the non-conforming detail, acute. And 
it sounded also like a foreshadowing of finding colors and finding uh, images uh, that you now do as an artist. Yes. I just was always a very visual person ever since I was little. And I think my dad was as well because he had to identify fossils by looking carefully at their teeth. And so he, he, he was able to tell you exactly what kind of animal it was just by looking at their jaw bones and stuff. So he, he was a visual, he had to be a visual person. <laughs> um, he also was a writer and, and a bunch of other things, but, um, but that, that really, there's a story about him being in Mongolia and he found a, he was in the museum there and they, they, he saw a jawbone and he said, oh, this is the other half of the upper, you know, this <laughs> is the bottom jawbone of the upper that's at the museum in New York. And he just knew it. And sure enough, they took a cast and it fit perfectly. That's amazing. So. You, you mentioned your father was a writer. <laughs> uh, you mentioned in your memoir that an English teacher uh, told the preteen you to keep a journal on your exploratory and adventure trips out West. Uh, that was great yes. advice. Yes. I, I kept journals for, I have journals from when I was 10 years old, but she really encouraged me to keep doing it. And um, so I, I have, I had many journals to, to look at for this book, actually, to sort of double check myself. And that did really happen, didn't it? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> oh, yeah, it happened on. <laughs> well, you, you've got your, 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 brother, your brothers to check with as well. Yes. Yeah, I think they, they all, everyone was encouraged to, to keep, you know, keep keep a journal, especially going down the Colorado River every day. Amazing. In the evening, we would all write down in our journals what happened. And my I think my mom even kept a journal. So my dad did as well. We all did. Well, that's, I guess that begins with the scientific or the scientist in him. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Great. That's great. So let, let me ask you more broadly, as I said at the outset, uh, generally when I do these podcasts, I'm asking people what they're reading. Are you reading anything uh, of interest in the art world or otherwise? Um, I was just reading some, what is his name? J.C. Box, little Wyoming mystery stories that I was reading recently. I like that kind of stuff. It all takes place in Wyoming, so. <laughs> so what, what is his name uh i think his name is cj box actually cj i think it's cj box and he writes yeah. wyoming mystery stories right kind of those um kind of like tony hillerman yeah. but in wyoming instead of arizona cool and um i tried to start cloud cuckoo land but i didn't get very far with that one yet I, I don't know that one. Who who wrote that? Do you know? Uh, this one is called, uh, oh, Anthony Doer. Yeah, I, I haven't read too much lately other than those, those items. So your, your affinity uh, for Wyoming is certainly deeper than our family's affinity for Wyoming. We love Wyoming. Yeah, I love Wyoming. I, I, it brings me back to my childhood and just from the smells alone, like the, the sagebrush and yes. the vastness of the lands and the colors and the mountains. And um, there's something about it that just 
it just got into my into my bones basically yeah and um i feel at home there because of the land uh, i mean i and i love the people too um even though they they may uh, they may be all republicans there in wyoming but <laughs> maybe i and i'm a democrat so but i still they they would take they would you know if they if you had a problem they'd take the shirt off their backs to help yeah. you that's just kind of the way they are the way that's their the way they think but yeah it's a I have plans. I, I'm making plans to go to Wyoming this summer. I haven't been because uh, my husband was ill and, and I couldn't go. But right. um, I have plans um, to go out and try to get back into, you know, the routine of painting out out in the field, which I like to do. I like to paint right on site. So right. uh, that means I need to go out there. So. Yeah, and you need you need to be there. We first went to yeah. Wyoming in um, 1987. We had a friend who I always refer to him as the only Republican I ever voted for. He was uh, a very liberal New York State senator who had a home in Jackson, and he uh -huh. inv he invited us out. And I said, you know, we'd be thrilled to come out. Melanie, our daughter, was ten, and David was eight. Was or, or nine and seven. It was the year before our son Ben was born. And I said, but we just want to stay a day or two with you and refer us to a ranch, a dude ranch, where we could spend a week. And uh, we stayed with our friend Roy and his wife, Barbara, at the time. Um, and then we went to the Triangle X Ranch in Moose, Wyoming. So right out of Jackson. And uh -huh. It was phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> the views of the Tetons, I had never even thought about the Tetons beforehand, were amazing. They are really something. They're really something. We had a great time. Yep. The next May, our son Ben was born, and that was 1988, so summer 1988, and um, that's the year of the fires in Yellowstone. And I called the ranch before we flew out, because we, so we booked the ranch again. And I called, right. called the ranch and I said, how close are you to the fires? Is there a problem? They said, no problem whatsoever. We got off the plane. We had cinders falling from the sky. Oh, no. Oh, that's we, awful. We, we did not see the Tetons once for the entire week we were oh. there because of the, oh. the fires. <laughs> uh, but it didn't deter us. We had a great time. And we went back for the following seven years every summer. And we saw a lot of yep. the Tetons. and. Uh, it was extraordinary. It was it's really something. It's just a, a great place and big, big state. I mean, it takes all day to drive across it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, we, we've spent, yeah. we spent a lot of time there and, and we went back once. There's a, there's a, uh, you, do you know the sleep of, I guess say, of course you do. Uh, the sleeping Indian, um, uh, rock formation up in the mountains. There's a rock formation uh, that looks like a sleeping yeah. Indian. And there's a ranch adjacent to it up in the mountains, up in the hills. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm drawing a blank on the name of the ranch. But um, we stayed there one time uh, in 2010 or 2011. And I've told the kids that we're planning for them to take us back in a couple of years. Uh, but to get everybody out there. It, it's very special. I, I, we had a place that we went to later with my husband 
uh, to, it was called the HF Bar Ranch, and it's over by Sheridan, and it's old Wyoming ranch style. Yeah. And the old ranch house and family-style dining, and they have uh, something, I don't know, 19,000 acres that they can ride horses on. and It's just a beautiful place, and I think I've probably painted 40 paintings from this ranch. Wow. I don't know. I have to count how many things I've done there. <laughs> but, but a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. That's a lot. Well, th- this has been this this has been great. This has been fascinating. I I'm so glad we had a chance to talk. Yes, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for letting me talk about my book a little bit. Well, the the book was wonderful. <laughs> it, it it really conveyed, I think, who you are, and uh, and to have that ba- have that background, that that kind of a childhood growing up, the inspiration of your father. Uh, and for you, to, just as you get connecting it, connecting your artwork with his science, just phenomenal. So thank you. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> thank you. More information about our guests today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie provides overall creative direction. Ben and Eden and Catherine provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol, my soulmate, is my muse. Three-and-a-half-year-old Jake, who is a delight beyond words, continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's sweet, energetic, and equally delightful one-and-a-half-year-old baby cousin Francesca, another great source of inspiration for us all. Thanks to Carol for getting us invited to the Birdcliff Guild dinner. Thanks to Abigail for the invitation. And thanks to the great anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. Thanks as well to A.J. Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time. Okay. Great. great. <laughs> How'd I do? Did I do okay? <laughs> you, you, did, you did great. You really did. It is so, it's so interesting for me because it, this is a way for me to dip further into Carol's world. Uh, this is what she loves, the, 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 yeah. uh, the art. And um, it's just moving up here, being up here, you know, being, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, we're not sitting in the same room, uh, being, you know, we're in, uh, you know, one of the Birdcliff houses that was built at an artist studio. And, yeah, you know it's exciting. You probably feel it. Yeah, you feel you it. Feel it. You really do. Yep. So, the first time I ever drove into Woodstock, I felt it. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, so I what, get it now." What What brought you to, to Woodstock? <laughs> the teacher that I uh, had had studied with, Nic- Nicholas Buhalis. Ah, right. Um, I he had been in New York City, and he had rented a burnt out shell of a building to have a studio in, and. And I'd heard about him, and he um, he was just there for a short time. And um, so then I, I said, called him up and said, I thought he was in Woodstock. And he says, 
well, where are you calling? I said, New York City, because I was living in New York. And he goes, well, I'm right around the corner. Come come and study <laughs> with me. So I said, okay. So it was really meant to be in some ways. And then six months later, he said, I'm closing this place up. I can't, you know, I'm going to go back up to Woodstock. And I said, well, if you're going to Woodstock, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> you are quite adventuresome. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to let that one go. No, I was already hooked. He he already, he was incredible. He he would take you aside and look you straight in the eye and he said, he would say, you're an artist. You just don't know it yet. That's phenomenal. <laughs> That's great. Now, is, is he still with us? No, he, he died in 94. Right. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I only had him for two years, two and a half years maybe. But it was enough to get me going, and uh, I think because I had the other teacher at Pratt, it kind of, I combined the knowledge that I learned from her with the knowledge that I learned from him, and that's what, that's why my paintings are sort of a combination of those two people in some ways. Um, it used to be that people would see the artwork and say, oh, you're a student of Nick Hollis, aren't you? And, you know, <laughs> so things things did change that I think it's not so readily evident that my work is like his, his, he's a lot more, um, a lot more straight lines and kind of very fine defined, uh, shapes and stuff. But, um, he was a great painter and a great teacher. How do you spell his last name? B-U-H-A-L-I-S. It's Greek. Uhalis. Yeah. And m- many people here in Woodstock had studied with him over the years. And then he, he came out of Detroit and um, he studied with this other teacher. My This is my artistic genealogy. I once did a genealogy of my all the art teachers, you know, yeah. going back in time. And they all wind up with Matisse back in in France <laughs> at the it, you know it was just funny how it happened but um his teacher was Sarkis Sarkeesian who's out of Detroit and um then Sarkis Sarkeesian studied with this guy named I think it was Wickeser maybe Wickeiser Wickeser and he studied he was at the uh, Julian Academy in Paris with Matisse that's amazing. Wickeser was very, very, very fond of, very impressed by Matisse, his work. So it just goes back to that era. And um, and then Mary Buckley had studied, I think she had studied with Hans Hoffman, perhaps. And before that, it was, there's some Albers in there somewhere because she was from Yale. And, Mary, and so Mary, she, Mary Buckley, was she from uh, Pratt? Yes, she was. She was a teacher at right. Pratt. She was the color teacher at Pratt for foundation. Yeah, she taught. Yeah, she taught the color, and and that was really an eye opener for me when I got into that classroom. When she started saying she was wildly cryptic, and but it <laughs> really, it really kind of made you think. Like you were desperate to think of what the hell she was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd all look at each other, huh? What did she just say? (laughs) But it really, I don't know. It's 
just so unusual to have a teacher that you, that spurs you on with this this knowledge that is it was we had to figure it out what she was talking about and we we often came up with very interesting solutions you know we weren't just fed everything on a plate right so, so I, a really interesting teacher i always tell people if they find a good teacher if they find a good mentor you know, change your life if you need to follow that person yeah because it goes it goes yeah it makes all the difference. So, yeah. So you would say today your work is a combination of Nick Buhalis and Mary Buckley? Yeah. It, it, it's your own, it's, of course. Uh, and who? It's your, it's, it's your own, yeah, of course. It's like, a, it's like, you know, like as children, children are, are unique, they're par- but they're born from their parents, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but they might have similar looks or something yes. you know it's the same concept with the painting because you're they're influenced you're influenced all the time by by these people right. so you're just gonna that's how you learn you know i think in, in some cases in many cases you know like you see like milton avery and sally sally avery you look at their work and you can see like how she was influenced by him with her work it's almost like you got two for one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite Bill and Hillary, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I think I'm also, I when I was a kid, Vincent Van Gogh was my, my hero. When I was a kid, I would look at the Vincent Van Gogh paintings, I had books at home, and I'd go pour, I'd pour over them and say, I could do that. I could do that. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. So it so it's you know we so Carol and I do a lot of work for the last 20 years uh, with a not-for-profit organization in the South Bronx, uh, the poorest congressional district in the entire country, 10 miles from Times right. Square and um we always say that one of one of our major objectives is to expose these kids to things. And so, you know, none of them, none of them, probably none of them go home at night and have a Vincent van Gogh book there to, right. to uh, give right. them inspiration. Uh, but it's, but it's, you know, you're another example <clears throat> of what we need to do. Is yeah. To get, I was probably eight or nine when I was looking at that book. Yeah. It, it made a difference. It did. Yeah. You would have gone all downhill and been a scientist for God's sake. <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, this, this is terrific. We'll continue this on a walk or something. And uh, okay, I look All forward right, to well, seeing you. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks so much. You're and welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, yeah. bye bye. Bye bye.